0: Yeah, tensu wonder Rinpoche, and actually that was when we were starting our first research project. Then Lorenzo Cohen, which is the researcher I've been working with for twenty years, um, he said, um, "I remember we were in Washington in the in uh, the first Tibet, international Tibetan medical conference." Although the Dalai Lama reminded us well, it's not the first one because the first one was in seventh century. But um, Lorenzo asked Rinpoche if you would measure. Whatever you want to measure, what would it be? And he said, open-heartedness. So um, since then, for me, that was a, another, again, another very important thing that really that's what we're after. It's not about, you know, the yogama waves or your, you know. I mean, those things are also good to measure brain waves or to measure, you know, mood and things. They're very important. But at the end of the day, if we want to say, kind of where do we really want to go it's about open-heartedness no love.
1: just imagine for a second if that were the measure more open heartedness I wonder what um, what would shift a lot I think but if you just sit for a few minutes and contemplate that I think that um, you'd get to some pretty cool places maybe you'd come up with ways in which you could be more open hearted and how that would uh, would transform parts of your life. Welcome today. Uh, I have uh, uh, Today's participant, Dr. Alejandro Chaul, has been on my list from, from day one. I'm excited to finally sit down with him and um, have a cup of tea. This was a great ritual. I, I just really enjoyed. He came to my office and um, we had a wonderful conversation. Um, I got to learn more about him, and uh, certainly his uh, wisdom and years of experience and practice are are each evident through this conversation. I want to start with his bio, and then I'm going to get into a couple of notes. If I can find it. Here we go. I'm not going to pronounce these words correctly, (laughs) so let's just lead off with that. Dr. Alejandro Chaul is a senior teacher of the Three Doors, an international organization founded by Tenzin Wengal Rinpoche with the goal of transforming lives through meditation. Alejandro has studied in the Tibetan tradition since 1989 and for over two, 20 years with the Jungzin Tenzin Namdak and Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche, completing the seven-year training of the Lingmicha Institute in 2000. He also holds a Ph.D. in Tibetan Religions from Rice University. Since 1995, he has been teaching meditation classes and Tibetan yoga workshops nationally and internationally under the auspices of Ling Micah Institute and is on the board of the Ling Micah Texas Institute for the Tibetan Meditative and Healing Arts. In 1999, he began teaching these techniques at the Integrative Medicine Program of the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas where he holds a faculty position and for the last 15 years conducts research on the effects of these practices on people with cancer. He's also an associate faculty member at the University of Texas McGovern Center for Humanities and Ethics, where he teaches medical students in the areas of spirituality, complementary and integrative medicine, and end-of-life care. Alejandro is also the author of Child Practices in the Bon Tradition, Snow Lion, 2009 and he's a wonderful teacher. I'm uh, I'm really grateful, Alejandro, thanks for your time. Um, and anybody at the end he offers his email and uh, uh, I th- I think that's a, a genuine offer. You can reach him at alechaoul.com a l e c h a o u l.com. And if you'd also go to young Houston jung h u s t o you can look up the um, Mind-Body Institute of the Young Center that, uh, that he and Sean Fitzpatrick have, have been created uh, creating. Uh, yeah, younghouston.org, the Young Center's Mind-Body-Spirit Institute. Um, and he's got a really cool video on there. You can see him in action talking about the uh, CPR that they're, they're providing, the Compassionate Professional Renewal. Uh, it's a really good program they're offering, and uh, Alejandro is a good a good leader of that program. So, I, I in listening to, you know, I go through a, a couple of different <laughs> modes of of being when I'm creating these episodes, and one of them that has become a really <laughs> beautiful ritual is choosing music, and I get to go back in time and have these great memories and listen to entire catalogs of of music the people that I'm uh, that that the people that I'm kind of mining through have, have written and created. So today is a group called Flickr Stick and they're old friends of mine and this first song you heard it was an intro piece from a live recording they did. And I was probably standing on that stage when it was recorded. Um, if not I was pretty close. I, my, in my history, one of the reasons why I ended up recording my album, I heard Flickerstick's first album and it sounded so good. I wanted to know where they did it, and they they did it with a couple of guys named Todd and Toby Pipes, at Base Propulsion Laboratories, and um, so many bands that I'm I'm mining through came out of that, um, out of that studio. So the the Flickerstick guys, I've I've known them for years. Um, And in particular, Brandon and Fletcher Lee, two brothers out of Fort Worth. um, They've been friends for years, and we spent a lot of time together. And they are, it's kind of different, to, I think, to choose this band that's a pretty good rock and roll. Uh, (laughs) I mean, they're they're good rock and roll. I think they just can get heavy sometimes. So to choose this band for a conversation about meditation may sound kind of odd um i urge you to listen to the song at the end it's called bleeding it's from the album tarantula uh, i chose it really specifically for uh for for one main reason and that was w- years ago when i was reading pema chodron and um and she was talking about a practice called Tonglen, T-O-N-G-L-E-N. And meditation practice can frustrate me at times because a lot of people I I come in contact with have this expectation that they need to be more relaxed or somehow not have any anxiety. And in in my experience from the teachings that I've come upon, while that is a part of this, Uh, meditation and Alejandro gets into this in our conversation well that's a part of the practice that's really not the whole practice or not the point of the practice so you know we all the time we hear these metaphors and you know visions that we're supposed to um, bring up in our imagination of like transforming you know uh, breathing out light you know to the world and and that's wonderful Although Tonglen is a different practice. This is a practice whereby the individual breathes in darkness. And they breathe in filth. And they breathe in struggle. And the heart is imagined to be the center of transformation. And what happens is the the kind of individual becomes a vehicle for transformation. Because when they breathe out, that is the light. So it's not, it's not just about the light, and I, I think that any you know, philosophy or psychology that that avoids the dark is doing a disservice, and it's setting up an enormous conflict. So I've I've really liked parts of this conversation that Alejandro got into, that Alejandro and I got into about you know how to be more aware of, <laughs> as we said in the conversation how to bring your shit to the pillow and not avoid it because we spend a lot of time avoiding feelings like anxiety and fear and not learning from them and not coming to know them in a new way so meditation you know kind of the the vision that really makes sense to me is not the one where you sit and just make yourself crazy (laughs) Um, it's about having some kind of a practice and a container that provides you the capacity to bring this stuff to the pillow and not just kind of blindly and um, rawly expose yourself to, to those um, kind of inevitabilities of, of living. We've all got that. So I, I started thinking about meditation and this kind of practice and I, 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 thought artists do the same thing. They, they kind of bring the shit to the pillow or the canvas or the guitar. My wife and I were recently having a conversation about kind of the need in in youth, in particular, to have these kind of creative endeavors to kind of pr- have a container to make sense of all the chaos that we all experience. I, in particular, I, I made a joke about, you know playing a Stratocaster at, um, at a young age and giving somebody a lot of uh, containment for their highs and lows and transforming those into a creative act. So the intensity of the song at the end, it, it grows. It starts off nice and easy and then it grows. It is, it's actually a, a, almost a course of meditation you know, if you could just imagine the songwriter creating the music and bringing forth those images and melodies, and I think that's powerful. I think that's really powerful. So I I, I don't shy away from that kind of intensity. I really like this song, not only in general, but just for uh, for this particular podcast. So, I'm really happy to present Flickr Stick. I spent a lot of time with these guys back in the day and uh, um, had a lot of fun. So, the, a couple of notes. Um, the theme music that you're hearing is Modern Nations music. Um, the song is Clouds. That's the podcast theme music. And you can reach them at modernnationsmusic.com. Um, I have included Flickr Stick's iTunes iTunes account in the liner notes of, uh, of the podcast, uh, they broke up years ago and, um, don't have a website or anything, but they do, uh, they do of course have their albums out there. So, uh, so follow that thread and you can get to their music. Um, for, I got Alejandro's website, this project, the sacred speaks, you can get information at the sacredspeaks.com. T h e s a c r e d s p e a k s dot com. Check the liner notes, and you'll also have a link there. I'm going to be s- soon. I'm going to be including a class that I just taught on the body and consciousness on the uh, website. Um, it was live streamed, and that kind of generated some energy in me to just go ahead and record it. And so I, I have the class. It's a four part series. Um, so it's about I think close to six hours of content, and uh, it, it really goes into art and creativity and discipline and these kinds of practices to um, hel- help the individual kind of find more meaning and purpose in life. Um, so I'll be posting those soon. As always, I'll, I'll post videos of the music, and um, you'll have all kinds of links and um, information about the participants and the music and the ideas that are, that are being thrown around on this project. Um, I think that's it. I I think, uh, oh yeah, I guess, I guess the only other thing is kind of a serendipitous moment. Um, after having that conversation about struggle and kind of bringing the darkness in and providing transformation, I, you know, I got uh, a little restless at some point this week and I watched the Amy Winehouse documentary, and I just think it was amazing, and it certainly goes into these kinds of experiences. And if you're interested in kind of looking in real time, seeing what art and creativity can do to help somebody kind of work through the difficulties and inevitabilities of their inner and outer world, check that out. It is a fantastic documentary, and... um what a what a tragic experience um, for people who want to listen to somebody who speaks those kinds of truths, uh, and certainly for uh, for Amy Winehouse. So on that note, I think we'll um, we'll leave it there. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being here, and thank you, Alejandro, for uh, for your wisdom, and uh, thanks to the guys in Flicker Stick for the use of this song. Okay, we'll leave it there. So you've got tea.
0: I've got tea. I got chai.
1: <laughs> I'm happy to uh, to serve you tea today. Thank you. I'm happy you're here too. Um, I we were talking earlier about my morning ritual and. How you've been, I guess you've been in my head or I've been in your head for the past, you know, several weeks since we scheduled this up, but especially since I've been reading your book. And it's, um, I kept feeling this appreciation for anybody who takes the time to put those thoughts down and to really think about the things that kind. drive you wild and get you excited. And you've been thinking about these thoughts and ideas for a long time.
0: Yeah, and what's interesting for me about this book, um, much more in a way than the previous one, is that half of the book is not necessarily written in, but thought in, felt in my yoga mat and cushion. Um, And so, first of all, a deep appreciation to my teachers, uh, because without them, both I wouldn't have learned what I've learned, um, but also I wouldn't have been able to share it. Um, Mm -hmm. In the Tibetan tradition, they're very specific on when you're allowed to share the practices. So, um, as I was, even before writing the book, just thinking about the possibility of it and then talking to my teacher, Tenziwanda Rinpoche, about it. And um, and then as I was sitting every day, during those two years, basically I was sitting mostly on the practices of the book. So I was sitting, and some of that would kind of get into the book. A lot didn't, Um so what i wrote was not just kind of thinking about it but what came up so so it was a a wonderful experience
1: yeah that is the one of the things about it's not an intellectual experience you're in the the beginning of the book you were writing about all these retreats and you know years of experience that you've been on the mat so to speak developing and cultivating the capacity to even to not only to do what you're doing but especially to teach it and i'm glad you hit on that because that's definitely one of the things i want to get into which is anytime i've read especially eastern traditions there's there's just a, a, a an appreciation for the lineage hmm. and uh, certainly you, in, in other spaces you get that acknowledgement pages and all that and we certainly want to Show gratitude for the kind of the shoulders that we're standing upon, but there's always such. Usually, at least the people that I've been reading, there's such reverence for not only teacher but but lineage, and I I really felt that at the beginning and the end of the book. Yeah,
0: Yeah, um, for me that's so important, and and you know having. Being so lucky to be in the monasteries in India and Nepal, and visiting Tibet, um, and being with my Tibetan teachers both there and here, um, every opportunity I have, I I try to to see them. And sometimes <clears throat> in the past, as I was writing my dissertation, when I, you know it would be, can you answer me this question and can you do this? <laughs> and now, I just go to hang out. You know, so I was recently teaching in France. And then uh, my older teacher, uh, Tenzin, I'm um, sorry, Lopun Tenzin Namdok, he's 94 now. He This was his last trip to the West. He was in France. So I went to, to visit him. And you know, I was there only for a day and a half and, you know, got to see him four or five times. And it was basically talking about stuff, talking about the family, talking about the weather, talking. Sometimes he likes politics. Uh, and then talking about practice, but yeah. but not asking him the questions anymore and just being with him. And I remember talking to Tenzi Wanderenpoche, who's also a student of him and my teacher. Um, so it's kind of that lineage thing that you were saying. Mm-hmm. And when I told him that I was going there, he said, oh, just be there and enjoy. And I just saw him. Actually, I just saw he just was there. I just saw in uh, WeChat uh, that he was there where he sent me some photos. So this lineage part, there's, there's such a warmth in that connection. And and also, with these particular practices, it was through my teachers, for example, Tenzi Wanjir as he saw my development and engagement in these practices, go to the monastery and learn from his soulness, Lungto Tempanima. And so I spent a, a few months there. In fact, um <clears throat> You know, uh, when originally I asked him I wanted to do that, he said, Well, you need to come for the 100 day retreat. And my son was, I think, let me see, that was to he was three and a half, and my daughter was one and a half years old. So my wife, Erica, said, You're kidding, right? <laughs> and so, but we kind of finally negotiated that, um, what about two months? And so I called him back, even though he had told me either 100 days or nothing. I said, you know, someone is, you know, I I can't make it for 100 days, but what about 60 days? And I hear a pause, and then he says, when are you coming? <laughs> and and so that time with him was, was beautiful. And then last year, um, you know, in the last few years he he got cancer and then um last year he ended up passing away and at the last moment i decided to to go back and to his cremation and and it was very interesting because i hadn't been back in that monastery for around 12 years or so so being back and seeing that it was and and the gathering was so profound like around 500 monks and 500 of non monks like us. And my teacher, Ten200, was there. And it was actually there when I noticed that the practices that I had been writing for this book, and I was about just wrapping up the book, um, actually, I learned there with him. And so it was there that I decided to, would um, you say? Honor the book to him. Uh, what, what do you call that? Uh, dedicate. Dedicate. Thank yeah. you. Dedicate the book to him. And 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 so um, it was it was just such a moment of wow! I'm here again. He just passed away. I actually we were able to see the body, and uh, being back in the monastery where I learned and you know spent two months all the time and and all the things that I've learned with him and he wouldn't let me bring my computer he wouldn't let me record him it was you know text and pencil yeah. and you know I um but, and then just walking around the monastery and do, I mean it was just such a special time that all that kind of came together there and it was like yeah and hopefully this book will be something that um, I can capture some of that. Um, And as we say in the Tibetan tradition many times, um, all the wisdom comes from them and all the errors are mine.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. When you were talking about that, seeing his body and being in this really auspicious place and, you know, here you are creating this book and um, the the Tibetan practice of the funeral or death. Would you say a little bit about that? What was that like?
0: So it was a huge ceremony, particularly because he was the head of the whole burn tradition. So there's five big traditions in Tibet. So this is one, um, and so it, and this is the most ancient one. So it's the burn, the Nyingma, the kagyu, the sakya, the geluk, and so. Um, so when his soul the Dalai Lama meets, he meets with the five heads of all these traditions. So he was one, very revered and, and someone who was very open to bring um, and learn from different um, traditions, not only Tibetans, but otherwise. So he would send sometimes some of his monks to Christian monasteries. One of the years I was in the monastery, um, for the New Year, for Losar, he he brought or he invited um, a native um, Canadian um, uh, traditions. And they would be what do you call First Nations. Mm-hmm. And they would be with their instruments doing their rituals in that land. And so he was dialoguing and saying, these are our rituals, these are your rituals. He was very 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 open and I've I've learned so much from him in in that part as well and in the vision that he had when you see the the monastery it's not just the monastery and the monks there is a medical school there is the place for uh for guests so we could be there there is the yogi uh or the, the for the lay practitioners um um, center or meditation grounds. There is a cross, there is the nunnery, so for the female practitioners. Um, And this is all in that huge compound that he kept on envisioning and becoming almost like this fantastic mandala. And every time I'd be there, something else appears, and now a fantastic library that actually he's only the Dalai Lama blessed. And so His vision was amazing. So just being with him, whether it was in India or in the West, um, it's, you know, the the whole amount of learning um, and that he so generously um, and unimpedingly gave, you know, it's it's just, you know, um, there's no words to, to thank him for what he has done. Not only personally, but for the whole tradition, for the whole tradition, really. So
1: So the ceremony itself was...
0: So the ceremony itself, so all of us, you know, so many people, around a thousand people were there. And it took three days. Every day we could go in the morning and view the body. And then there were ceremonies and there were the whole, inside the temple, there were different offerings of butter offerings, uh, grain offerings, all these, you know, different uh, offerings. Artisanries and um, and arts and I mean crafts. I mean amazing ways of um, offerings that they do colorful um, mm. with different parts of text and so forth. And um, and then they were preparing the actually cremation place. Um, and so the cremation place, of course, outside it, right next to the main nest part of the monastery. And so as the rituals were going, some people were preparing that. And then finally, the cremation day. And the cremation day was just amazing because the ritual of bringing the body, putting there, and then suddenly the fire. So you had just seen the body. And now it's catching fire and it's burning and um The smoke and the people and you're almost touching, you know, shoulder to shoulder, body to body because there's so many people. A lot of people that you know and they're kind of brothers and sisters and both sad and at the same time kind of in reverence, um, Yeah, very incredible moment. Um, and uh, incredible days of being in the monastery and sharing both with monks and lay people, Tibetans and Westerners, um, re meeting with a lot of people, and sharing the deep love. Um, that we had for him, that we have for him, and um, and that we all learned so much from him. He gave in so many ways to keep the tradition alive. So he and the teacher I was mentioning before, Lopon Tenzi Namdak, um who's in Nepal, them too are the oldest from this tradition that kept it alive. They came from Tibet and um yeah Lopon even um as he escaped he as he says he was he has a still one knee blessed by a chinese bullet um so a really powerful thing to have these amazing people with the courage and the wisdom to traverse that very dangerous journey keeping what they valued the most which are the teachings and then creating centers to share them and um and then somehow um that it got spilled on us that we were able to get some of 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 those teachings you know and 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 then able to get deep in them and uh so it, it's just like kind of a fairy tale
1: you know how did it spill on you
0: So, um, let me see where I start, because...
1: uh, As early as you want.
0: So, if I start early, um, when I was probably around eight years old, I, I had what I called anxiety attacks. So, I would wake up in the middle of the night and just... Now what? And it would happen also to me in uh, movie theaters. I think it was all kind of when it was really dark. Dark, And um, I didn't know what to do with that. I was in, so I'm from Argentina, a very Catholic country. I was born in the Jewish tradition. I actually went to Presbyterian school, interesting (laughs) enough.
1: What a a soup you are.
0: So, of course, became Buddhist, right? Uh, (laughs) But, but, you know, it was, it was hard to, to know what to do with that and kind of, I don't know exactly how all kind of became that tapestry of, of my own journey. But, but one thing that I remember very clearly was, um, I came to the book Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, and it was a a book that I read over and over again. I had, I don't know if you guys had that here, for us to protect the books, we put something called Contact, which is, so I still have it in Spanish, No, um, And so it was a very kind of almost sacred, I don't know if I would call it that at that time, but a very special book for me. It was Mi Libro de Cabecera, you know, the one that you have on your head space in a way. And so I read it over and over again. And um, at that time, I didn't really connect the dots that that was the life of Buddha Shakyamuni. Um, but but it, it really did bring a number of different topics, particularly about death, illness, even birth being part of that process that at that time, I didn't yeah, really sexuality. link it.
1: I mean, that was a- yeah, How old were you when you were reading this
0: I started at 8, I probably, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12. I mean, I probably read it a number of times until I was a teenager. And, um, and then, in my last year of high school, so I was 17, um, a friend of mine, his uncle, um, meditated. And he said, hey, do you want to come with me to my uncle's? And I said, sure. So that was my first uh, approach he was uh, he he was a teacher in the transcendental meditation tradition but he um, also followed Rudolf Steiner mm. and uh, the anthroposophic tradition so it was a very interesting combination and then um after that I went to college I did some yoga and then became went back to Argentina did some tai chi and then and then actually, I met the Hare Krishnas and did some vegetarian cooking and some Zen teaching. You know, so I I explored. I love to explore. College was a wonderful time. Where'd to you explore. go? <clears throat> Boston University. Uh, well, I started in Argentina and then I transferred to Boston. And uh, one of the things I loved the most, I love BU, but but one of the things I loved the most was that there was all these other courses around that you could take. Um, that weren't, they they call it something like free school or something. And that's where I took all these other things. And just Boston as a city, I was just leaving my son there now and my daughter close by. And all that area is so uh, wonderful. And I was remembering all the things, you know, that exploring time. And, um, And so after that, I did I decided, I met a lot of people from different countries, but a lot of people particularly from India. I got, and I got really interested in the Indian philosophy, and I did actually take classes in Indian philosophy and Indian religions. So I was, but I was much more interested at that time in Hinduism. So when I finished, I I did go to India and I spent, I thought I was going to go for a couple of months. I spent almost a year And as I was there and I met wonderful Indian teachers, particularly Swami Chinma Anandaji, um, then um, after also meeting um, other teachers, I met the Dalai Lama. And that really shifted my whole uh, connection to spirituality, because when I connected to him and to the Tibetans in general, um, there was something very powerful, um, both traditions had the lineage. Both the Indian and the Tibetan had mm-hmm. very strong the lineage. The Tibetans emphasized, at least in the way, you know, and many times it's not that that tradition does that, uh, but that you see one part of it. Like, you know, I grew up in the Jewish tradition. I wouldn't say it wasn't there. I just didn't see it there. Mm-hmm. Same yeah. with the Christian or others. So what I saw in the Tibetan tradition that was really touching to me was this aspect of wisdom and compassion and in everyday life so they were so open in receiving me in the monasteries and giving me food and giving me a place to sleep and then they were always laughing they had they were you know um uh, the dalai lama too was you know even though this serious you know the most important person in that lineage you know kind of the pope scare quotes um and he Laughed all the time. He, I remember actually, I took a photo of him the first time I saw him. I was like from here to the wall, and at that time, of course, no uh, uh, digital cameras, uh, so I was taking with my slides. And I actually probably shot a whole roll on him, and uh, he was smiling, and and nothing came out because I was shaking. Um, I was so nervous, um, but there was something very powerful in the connection. The next time I met him. There was a whole thing that happened, particularly I was kind of crying without knowing really why. I really connected to the tradition and wanted to learn more. And then when I came back to Argentina, uh, right before I left to Argentina, actually I met Yeshidor uh, Djerimpoche, a great teacher who was also actually the weatherman for the Dalai Lama, who would stop rain when it needed and create rain. That part I didn't learn well. Uh, but... Um, I learned from him, particularly all what they call the non or the preliminary practices. Um, and um, that's what I practiced when I came back home to Argentina. And then I met Namkai Norburen Puche, who was uh, another wonderful teacher who, after uh, some time with him, he also directed me to Lopontenzi Namdak, whom I met. In 91, back in New York, when we were organizing the visit of the Dalai Lama in 92, first visit to South America. And then through Lopun, I met Tenzin Pache And when I saw them together for the first time, it was like, bang, this is where I want to deepen. Um, and so since then, that was 93, 94, I've been with them. Um.
1: Well, I'm trying to think of, I have a lot of questions. Um, The first, I'm just going to lay the two out and we can kind of go, but I want to start with two. The first is I'm really curious what it's like, see if I can get this right, to be a young guy in a Catholic community a catholic country pretty much in a jewish community at a presbyterian school moving to boston what's that like to arrive in boston
0: well you know partly there were interesting circumstances around that um so partly i went there because my career at that time was advertising and it was not really a career much in argentina i did a little bit i did a I did a year of architecture, then I did a advertising, but also the political situation in Argentina uh, was very tough. We had the militars there, um, and um, and it was it was a way. Also, I learned later um, from my parents to say, go to a safe place, and uh, and maybe you know if we need to leave um we have a place to go. Um so it was it was an interesting place and I arrived to Boston. One of the things I loved about that was that it was a big city or a relatively big city. And so I come from a big city. Buenos Aires it's a it's a it's a very large city, 13 million people. And so it was it was like being again a city, but also in a city where there were, I don't know, fifty, sixty colleges around. So seeing a lot of students and professors that you have the T, which is public transportation. For those who are in Houston, we don't know that much. But, uh, you know, great public transportation. And so you meet with people from all these different other schools in Boston. um, And it was very rich. It was a a time, you know, I I felt like a sponge, you know, I mean, trying to learn from all these things. And so it was it was wonderful to be there and and the the first few months were hard because was learning back in English, which um it wasn't easy, but you know I got used to it and uh but it was uh and, and meeting all these people meeting um a lot of international students in fact, that's the time where i I met uh, Erica who's now my wife mm-hmm. uh but uh at that time we were just uh friends. <laughs> and when I
1: was reading your book, I found myself empathizing with both of you when you were wanting to go to the 100 day retreat. I, I found myself empathizing with her, saying, You know, what the hell are you talking about doing, man? <laughs> and then I also empathized with you, saying, Oh my gosh, what an opportunity, 100 day retreat. You know, that was great to uh, a good compromise.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think it worked out well uh, all along. In, and and in what the...
1: year was it when you went to Boston?
0: So, Boston was. 83 to 87 i graduated 87 um and then um and then when i came to virginia which is when i met erica again uh stopping in costa rica where she's from i went to uva for my master's in 94 to 96 and then came to Rice in 96 what
1: was the master's
0: uh religious studies religious
1: Did you get a bachelor's in
0: philosophy? So, bachelor I did two: one in advertising, mass communications, and one in um, uh, philosophy. Interesting enough, the one in mass communications is a BS. (laughs) (laughs) The other one, a BA. Yeah, that's
1: a good one. (laughs) The other. So, the second question that I that I had, the thing I wanted to follow up on, it's it's really, it sounds like. Two of the bam, big bang moments, you know, was the the first when the first time you met the Dalai Lama and then seeing all these teachers, you know, that that certainly were, were your teachers and, you know, you continue to be on. I, I'm wondering what that was like, and especially meeting the Dalai Lama for the first time.
0: Yeah, those moments were very significant. So with the Dalai Lama, I had um, a couple of, significant encounters so the first one was the one that I was mentioning I was taking photos it was the 40th anniversary of the Tibetan children village and so he was the main speaker and he had just gotten the Nobel Peace Prize and so it was a tremendous time the Tibetan community was so um, honored and so joyful and the kids were doing this wonderful performance where at the end they were all dressed in white and at the end they curled and they formed these words saying others before self. And this was really something that I've seen mm. so much in the Tibetan tradition. And the Dalai Lama there. And then I got to see him in a public meeting and and that's when when I met him I he asked me my name and I I was speechless. I, yeah, I couldn't say a word. He basically said, okay, go on. And he gave me the blessing. And And then I sat under a closed tree still in the residence area and started crying until the, basically the guards say, you have to leave. Um, but it was, I went into the forest there and just stayed crying. I mean, it was just a a very strong moment. Um and then um, a few months later, I had a similar moment with my first personal teacher with Yeshidor jarmpache where he um, took me as a student and um, and just gave me this precious teaching and I was just so touched that finally... Um, I got something that seemed to be a path, you know, because when I went to India, one of the first things was that my whole thing that I've gathered in philosophy crumbled because it seemed uh, not to make so much sense. And in that confusion, there was also a sense of liberation of Mm. almost like taking my heavy backpack off. But there was, no guidance, the teacher I was with would say, now be. And I was like, How? And um, he was a great teacher, Yuji Krishnamurti, not JD Krishnamurti mm-hmm. but and but basically it was just stay and be. And I couldn't. I I didn't know how. So when I met the Tibetan tradition and and, and, and there was this Path. Even though it was a long path, it was you have to do 100,000 of this, 100,000 of that, 10,0, you know. So the Tibetans usually take six or nine months to do full time. They get support. They get people paying for their food, for their lodging. You know, they basically, I didn't get that. Uh, but um, I stayed there for a little bit. And then when I went back home, it actually took me almost seven years to finish. Uh, and in fact, during that time is when I met... Tenzin in Pachay, and he was very supportive of me doing this practice, but he said, So, when are you finishing?
1: Sounds like a PhD.
0: Yeah. Sounds exactly. like what my wife
1: said about my PhD. When it was my ABD.
0: I was an ABD, you know? <laughs> For those who don't know, all about dissertation. Um, and so, um, and I remember there's one practice that it's called the mandala offering, and that you bring all these this beautiful mandala with grains and medicine and you offer and then you destroy and then you offer and this, you know. And so, of course, I'm quite messy. Um, and so there were grains everywhere. So every time Rinpoche would come to my house, he'd say, oh, mandala offering again. So when are you finishing? And and I said, oh, I promised my teacher, Yeshidroj who by then had passed away, I said that I'll finish it before I die. And he said, no, 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 you have to hurry up. There's a lot to do for you. And so um, he, Tenzin Rinpoche was always kind of pushing in the right direction. In fact, that was the reason I came to Rice. He was a Rockefeller fellow here um, working with Anne Klein. And, um, and when he came here um, and I was finishing my, my master's at UVA and he had opened the center close by there, um, he said, what about Rice? Have you thought of a PhD? And I said, now and um so that's what led me to come here and um yeah and then of course kind of those interesting things when once i got here uh not long after he said okay i can leave now you can stay with us, you know help the center pro, ligmincha yeah, center you're and, on now and uh so <laughs> but he's always been incredibly supportive all the way um even all the way for the book I wanted a calligraphy for the first line of the text. He wrote it. He was oh, that's somewhere, uh, yeah, yeah, that's nice. So uh, he he's been he wrote the the preface. Uh, he you know um, so so yeah, and we we're very much in touch. Um, um, no, that's the that His Holiness, that's the one who passed away. Uh-huh. But but if you go back uh, in the first chapter, there's a there's a calligraphy, uh-huh, and remember. that calligraphy is done by Tenzin Rinpoche. Yeah, yes. and he did it specifically for this. That's
1: beautiful.
0: So you know um, we're very much in touch, and and it's great. It's it's he's been my spiritual and academic mentor to a lot of because when I was doing my PhD and there were things he always oriented me, um, and um, and sometimes you know hard. Um, no. Uh,
1: spiritual practice tough
0: uh, <laughs> you know spiritual guidance uh in uh with i mean i don't think he 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 never uh you know threw me a threw me a shoe like they they say they do in the zen tradition yeah um stick to the face but 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 you know uh but good uh you know it's like kind of get you back on track when 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 you're not yeah. so um he's always been there yeah when he started, so he started, uh, in Virginia, he started what he called the seven-year program. And in that program, he lay out kind of, this is, I'm going to train people in all these things. They're going to be tests. They're going to be, and and that was really, it was three weeks every summer. And so I, I signed in. And... Uh, And it was wonderful. And it was wonderful to do. And it was in that first summer retreat that he invited, because one of the things, the beauty of what he does is he invites his teachers. Mm. And then he invites some peers and people that came after him. And so, you know, it's a whole community. And so when he was the first year with his teacher and he was in this house, you know, we didn't have, funds to create do much so we had a house we were around 30 people uh, the teachings were in the basement the kitchen was the garage uh, and uh, we slept in tents and we even the outdoor bathrooms we had to create um, and so seeing seeing them teaching side by side it was like the whole, What we call the refuge tree, the whole lineage tree was alive, and what was beautiful was that, of course, they talked a lot about the teachings and the sameness and the, but they also discussed, which I love, coming from the philosophical background, right? Mm -hmm. So it was it was almost like a a renewed and a different face of being in the academy with. Uh, socrates and plato and aristotle which uh, was what i loved about philosophy about that lineage part and so um since then it was like very clear this is it so that was like you know a moment uh, i don't know a zen moment you can say or a, you know a, a moment um of clarity of of Trying uh, because I was in my mind trying to decide what about this teacher, and it was very clear this is my path, and um, so yeah. And then finished that seven-year program, and then continued, and then during that he asked me to start teaching the Tibetan yoga. Um, yeah.
1: Well, I, I want to go back for. You know, I've got two other things I want to kind of recollect. The first is that I, I couldn't help. I really liked the moment when you were talking about going underneath the tree and having tears. So I really wanted to give that space, but I also found myself being curious what your tears were about.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I was sitting under trees, so there were twice, right? So one was with His Holiness, and one was after Yesha Dorje. And um, in both cases, it was a sense of, First, kind of overwhelm, feeling so blessed and so, I mean, grat, you know, grateful for whatever that happened because I wasn't sure what had happened. Um, it was clear that was powerful, and so kind of the the tears were just like. like I can't take it. Let me, you know, it overflows, and so um, and just being with it and and having the the time. I mean, I had the time of the world. I mean, in the one after the Dalai Lama until they the guards took me out, but uh, <laughs> but then I stayed in the you know in in another tree and in the forest. I mean, and just you know that one of the things in in that trip is that. I really had no schedule. Mm. So what was next was whatever came. So I could stay there. And the same after that happened with uh Yeshidorja and Puchaya, I would just stay and just like for a long time in both cases there wasn't much thinking. It was just like being in that Incredible space that there was some inner processing going on, but that was not manipulated. Yeah. So it was pure in that sense, um, unmanipulated, and just being a witness and being part of it, and um, and so. And almost the same, when I saw Rinpoche and Lopan, it was like, just being there. You know, it's like, wow, this is it. This, in the case of Lopan and Rinpoche, I, I had some more kind of knowledge background. So kind of what came out, it did come out as, not just the overwhelming, but it was like, wow, this is what it is, it, the lineage tree. It's not that tanka,
2: mm-hmm. it's not
0: that painting. That painting just represents this, exactly this. This is like 3D and not just in in form, but in all the senses. It was just like, wow. It was like, this is it. This is where you belong.
1: That's big, where you belong. Yeah, because there's that thread that really seems like you were whether it was conscious or not really seeking from, from this like religious uh, soup that you that you, you'd been in and and I, the other thing I'm on that note I'm interested in is the is what crumbled you kind of you said the you've been studying all this mm. philosophy you know and something kind of broke open
0: So I think uh, a couple of things. um, So one was that what I was searching for in in a way was totally misdirected. Even in the sense of looking for a teacher, looking for more wisdom, looking for the sense of belonging. It was almost like looking it outside yes, yeah. and making all these trips and going to see these people. And so if I got one thing from Yuji from Krishnamurti and, and the just be, was that at least it crumbled that it stopped my wanting to go further in the search, although I didn't know how to search in that way. I don't know if it makes sense, but it's almost like it was clear that I needed to stop and the direction I was going was not the one I needed mm-hmm. to be. But the path was not clear yet. So it was this intersection where now what? What? And that the answer I got, it was basically just stay. And I was not ready to stay. Um, but, But it was a very impactful moment of drop what you have. Almost like begin from zero again, blank slate. You're here now. Look, look what there is here. Just take this
1: i'll tell you i myself included people that i work with i mean that i felt something as you said that and I, I think it i felt what a lot of us feel in that moment which is terror dropping all the ways of being and approaches and the searching and the seeking and all the things that have worked for us you know and then to drop that that's that's scary for people
0: yeah it was and but it was interesting that you know especially because of the philosophy and the building up of this knowledge and you know mm-hmm. and and then being able to say okay I'm going to give it a ch- just let it go and it was interesting because at one level at the conceptual level was scary it was like how yeah. but at the at the feeling level it was so relieving it was like Like I was saying before, like letting go my big heavy backpack and just dropping it and say, take it. You you, know I don't need anything.
1: Do you think part of that, your ability to do that, is because of of the community that was present? I mean this thing you said earlier, others before self, is that's gotta be part of the essence of that community.
0: At that you know, not yet, but Uh that became an important part. So at that time I was with people I didn't know anyone. Only the the person that took me there was someone who uh, I was sitting next to by ch- I guess chance uh, when we saw the Dalai Lama in a in a in a big auditorium, and uh, he said, "Oh, what are you doing today?" And I said, "Nothing." I Said, "Why didn't you come and see this teacher?" So I came, and I stayed three days with them. Um, but there wasn't really I mean, even though there was a group, I didn't really feel that the community. But later, as I got into the Tibetan tradition and, um, and even in, in with the other teacher, with the other Indian teacher, with Chima Ananda, um, the community was very important. And in fact, when I came back home to Argentina, and I didn't think there was going to be anyone practicing this. Uh, luckily, I was wrong. Um, there was a center not far away from my mom's house, and I went to visit them. Even though they were practicing not exactly what I did, I want just to be in community, um, and that became very important. So we have this this word, and it's a Sanskrit word, but we use it a lot in among the Tibetan tradition, sangha. So it's this community, and 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 that becomes a a very important part of the practice. In fact, we call it one of the three jewels, right? Um, Buddha Dharma and sangha. So the the teacher, both external and internal the teachings themselves, the dharma, and the sangha, the community. Um, so I guess uh, what would be in integrative medicine, we would call the social support. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So,
1: social management system or something like that. Yeah. Well, the, the other, one other thing that kind of stands out I want to tug on is um, is you, you were talking about, you know, the, these six to nine month periods of time that people would get funded and they'll be able to stay there. And, you know, this thing that took you a little bit longer. What are those things that you're doing?
0: So you're doing things from prostrations, Mm -hmm. um, mandala offering, mantras. Um, So we call it the non-ra, the uh, the preliminary practices that basically you become a vessel ready to receive the teachings that sometimes they call it the lion's milk. So that if the vase is upside down, of course does not receive it. If the vase is cracked, it spills, so you don't keep it. If the vase is still dirty or poisoned, it poisons or dirties the milk. So you need to uh, to purify, to perfect it, until you're ready to uh, receive the, the dharma in its best way.
1: And this is repetition.
0: You do 100,000 of each, which uh, originally my teacher and, and many teachers do this, ask you to do it hundred and eleven, almost like a fool's proof number. You know, if you didn't get it by then, you know.
1: I get that so much. Not just being in the mundane just the mundane repetition day in and day out of intentionality. And I, I even wrote that, I wrote that down at the beginning of your book, you were talking about these practices that you teach about setting the intention. And with this in mind, I like this metaphor of the the vase or the the container. Um, You talked about the three obstacles, and I, I, that's what I thought when you were talking about the poison, if
0: it's poisoned,
1: mm-hmm. and three obstacles being the anger, attachment, and confusion. Would you say a bit about that?
0: Sure. So, in a way, these are... So, So the most important thing, and, and in this text, I, I and I emphasized it because the text itself is called The Instructions of the Ah. Ah meaning that natural state of the mind that we all always have, but it's always been... Um, in generally, it's been... Um, um, cluttered or veiled, or and so these things such as um, anger, attachment, ignorance are ways of not noticing that we have that state of mind. So there is a the ignorance kind of that sometimes comes almost together with that wisdom that at every moment we have a choice, even if we don't make it consciously, that either we notice that we are in that na- in that natural state of mind and that we call Rigpa or kind of knowledge or recognizing that our nature or marikpa that we don't notice it. When we don't notice it, we are either confused, meaning that we don't know where to go, or we go for the yes, this is The external thing is what I love. That's called attachment. This is it. And then you're out of the things of being in the natural state. Oh, no, that rejection, that anger, that, you know. So again, you're out. So these are the three ways that if you kind of double click, they become many more. Um, But these are the ways that you get out of being in that natural state of your mind. And so a lot of the practices that we do... um, both in sitting and in the Tibetan yoga part, are what we call Gek or clearing the Gek, which actually means obstacle. Um, um, And then, kind of Bogdun, or emphasizing or enhancing your meditation practice. And so, that's what you do in in your practices as you kind of shift from being in your monkey mind that usually has the address of our brain, and come more to the heart-mind or citta or sem that actually that's why um, I put in the book and this is a practice that I started from the beginning at MD Anderson called connecting with your heart kind of being back more grounded being connected
1: so I've been meditating about 12 years on and off but started years ago and I, I, it's enough time to where I've had a solid practice for extended periods of time and then moved away from it. And I know enough about it to know that kind of the modern day image of meditating, you know, somebody blissed out with a big smile on their face on a mountaintop. It, it really creates a conflict in, for people mm. who are trying to meditate. Cause my experience of meditation is like the opposite. That's where all the shit comes up. And I felt horribly uncomfortable in meditation before with images and anxieties and all kinds of things that stir up. My teacher at one point was saying that it's like a you stick a stick into a stagnant pond and swirl it around and all the gunk comes up from the bottom. And I, I don't know, when I, when I think about meditation, I'm probably just taking this opportunity to pick your brain about it. You're you're being my teacher right now. I'm wondering kind of, those. so those two things. One is people's impression that meditation is supposed to be easy and you you clear your mind or something. And the second is that kind of, we don't really talk about how you're gonna be met with some stuff in the process.
0: So I think there's different parts of meditation. Um, So there's one part that clearly is about calming down and kind of relaxing from whatever stress and there's a depending on on how deep you go of course there's a possibility that you end up actually on observing yourself and realizing oh yeah look at all this stuff and a lot of times what people do in meditation is they bypass that and they go straight into the bliss part and it could be helpful in some ways but if you're really deepening in your practice, you know, you you need to bring that gunk back. You know, um, as I say, you know, in a way, I mean, even for a long time, uh, at some point, I would feel like my meditation is a sacred space. And so I wouldn't bring my daily shit to the cushion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I noticed that, um, I mean, again, thanks to my teachers, that it was like, no, you need to, right? But the question is how you bring it. Because one of the advantages of meditation is that you don't bring shit with shit, or that you don't bring pain with pain. You don't bring, as tenzin would say, you don't bring it from your uh, rotten karmic cushion, but, other, but rather you come into a space where there is openness or spaciousness, there's luminosity or awareness, and there's warmth loving kindness, compassion. So if you're able to bring that shit, that pain into that space, then you can transform it from another place. If you're going to do what we usually do in non-meditative spaces, which is just fight each other or fight ourselves with our own stuff, it's the same if you do it outside or if you're doing in a sacred space. So partly is, So I think the important part of the preparation is to be in that space so that you can get ready to bring your stuff. And then not analyze it, but just let it be there. And things transform. And practice can be very helpful in that.
1: Maybe you can't even... This is probably the student, what the student often says, right, is, well, what, what is, what are some of the noticeable signposts along the path? And mm. what, and I don't know if that can be answered today, but is there anything you can say about that?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think uh, at least some. Um, so, you know, at the beginning, most meditation practices, but at least the ones I'm familiar with, Focus and calmness are two attributes that go together. We call them shi-ne. So shi is calming or pacifying. Ne is stabilizing or abiding. And so in that calm abiding, you get to it by focusing, bringing your mind to just one point, whether that's an external point, like maybe me looking at this mic, or mm-hmm. doing, or a flower, or whatever it is, or a candle, or looking at an internal, for example, my breath, mm-hmm. or a visualized um, light in a particular place, like in the center of my eyebrows, or you know. So by doing that, and and in a way, retraining your mind from the usual monkey mind to focus, focus, focus. That at the beginning there's a lot of effort then you notice that it can still be focused with less effort. So that's already one. There's a sense that it's like, oh, wow. You know, it's almost like that moment that after struggling, driving with shifts, at least for me, I was able to drive and have a cup of tea while I was driving, right? And it didn't disturb my driving, or so I thought so. (laughs) And so, you know, there's this part of being able to maintain focus without so much effort yeah and then there's a sense of relax and and enjoyment but of course that could go all the way into so much relax that you know kind of you hear the other mantra of you know uh but uh but, but, that but mantra before. <laughs> right right so so partly is uh, finding a balance and so you you do have and, and then in, in specific practices, the text would say, you know, this is what you, you know, you would feel maybe sensations of warmth or of bliss or of focus or of clarity, mm-hmm. or you would experience these kind of dreams or you would notice in everyday life, you know. And that's the one, I think, for what we do in more lay communities, so um, is how we notice it in everyday life. So how do we notice that the practice that I do has a difference in how I relate to my loved ones, to my kids, to my wife, to my partner, to my business, you know, colleagues, to, um, to you know, the cashier who I just, paid for lunch or you know whatever it is how do i relate to these people what triggers me can i change those triggers can i bring those triggers to my cushion and shift them noticing that Mm. where is that coming from it's not them right it's my something so can i notice that and just pay attention to it and maybe shift it from a place of acknowledgement and knowing and changing rather than, well, that's not the right way of doing it, so we have to do something else, but rather like, what feels different? How does it feel different when I actually am thankful and aware and present? Uh, Because a lot of times that's really the main component is being present. So even though A lot of people relate meditation to relaxation, and that's clearly an important part, particularly as we relax the monkey aspect of the mind. The part of awareness is as important, um, but you don't get to it in the awareness that we're talking about unless you get relaxed and focused.
1: In the Tibetan tradition, I'm wondering about, we're talking about triggers, you know, we we. It is is a trigger ever believed to be about the other, or is it? Does it tend to be looked at as self?
0: So. So the trigger can come from the other. But what is triggered is yours, right? So, um, so even if you say. You made me angry. It's my angry, my anger, it's not yours, Mm -hmm. right? You were right, you were skillful in pressing the right button to bring it up. And my, as a practitioner, I could, the best would be to take that opportunity to do it as a part of the practice. But my usual way would be just to fall into it. And the more I fall, Hopefully I start noticing, oh, shoo, I'm falling again for this. Can I change this? Um, And so then that becomes part of what not just the formal practice of what we do in the cushion or mat, but the informal practice of how we bring that into the rest of the day.
1: So you'd say not just about the trigger, it's about the pattern. And that especially is...
0: Once you notice the pattern, it's easier. Most. I would say most triggers are have a pattern, mm-hmm. um, and in 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 a way, actually, one of the the ways that we teach in something that we call the three doors, uh, something that Tenzin Wangdrimpoche came about. I mean, the 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 word three doors or the concept three doors is a very ancient in in the Tibetan tradition. We call it Gosum, and it means body, speech, and mind. Um, but the way that this program goes, it's about Exploring it in a way of, yeah, bring your shit to the cushion. Bring your pain. Notice your pain body. Notice how that feels. What is your pain speech? What is your pain mind? How, how do we notice those triggers? And, and most of the times, and then we ride a transformation when we do one. And, and most of the times, there, there's patterns that we notice that we keep on falling for.
1: But the the way you're saying it there is, actually, actively going onto the cushion and engaging the the pattern that you've come to know about.
0: Yeah, in those trainings, yes. Mm -hmm.
1: I think my my experience with retreats, meditation retreats, um, people piss each other off. (laughs) You know, I had this guy, a, a meditation teacher, I was listening to years ago and he said you know if you're ever on a retreat and somebody really pisses you off what you want to do is sit next to them before you meditate and before you meditate for 2 hours what you want to do is just start humming a really catchy song and and let them sit with that through their meditation <laughs> i thought man that's harsh but yeah i i think that we we kind of idealize places like the monastery or like the retreat as if it's going to be this kind of blissful thing and my not a meditation I lead retreats, and people are getting triggered left and right. Everybody's shit is at the foreground, and it's coming out all over the place. And that's the typical approach. Is like, okay, let's don't avoid that. Like, how do you bring it?
0: Yeah, and then you have to have the right container. Yeah, um, to make sure that if that comes up, that there's ways of supporting. Yeah. That yeah.
1: So. This takes us into. This is kind of the. You know, you building your container, all these practices that have contributed for your capacity to hold, and then to be able to teach. Because when your when your teacher leaves and says, "Okay, continue, like, take take it on, bring it into, uh, continue on in in America," um, is there anything that? Uh, what, the one thing we haven't really gotten into
0: all that much is your experience at Rice. So um, yeah, my experience at rice, um, it was very interesting because on one hand it was um, I came to to mostly be studying the Tibetan tradition, but because it's a PhD you do a lot of other things. and that was great because um, getting to uh, learn from, uh, all these other traditions and methodologies, you know, and, and you interviewed some, you know, like Jeff Kripel and Bill Parsons, um, people that I I still get to see now, and I always admired their work and learned a lot from them. Um, you know, it, it was, it's great to to see from those perspectives and then come back from the traditions that you're studying and seeing, oh, okay that's a great way of seeing it um there was another teacher who passed away who was wonderful Edith Wishugrod. um she was doing a kind of philosophy of religion and um and she was this old lady but it, she had she was so young at heart i remember she talking about tattoos and how you know like and i was like really um and she would we would have classes at eight o'clock in the morning and she would have read the New York Times by then and I'm like I barely made it to class um uh but but the approaches that each of them brought the approaches of different religious the uh, religions I I was also able through that to do start doing some dialogues interface dialogues mm. and got really into that and that's how I got connected also to the Rothko Chapel and um, so so there was a lot of rice that was was really opening the mind, even though I was really studying Tibetan traditions. Um, and so and so that was that was a time that was particularly important for me also because I I would talk to other people that would be in similar programs. And um, one of the things and that I felt were supportive was that practice was, still valued, even though in the academic circles, many times it's like, don't say you're a practitioner, right? Um, Luckily, you know, Anne was also a practitioner and so was very supportive. But even then, you know, it was, I mean, there was actually at the AR, the American Academy of Religion, years ago, uh, a panel that was called Coming Out of the Closet. And it was all these uh, professors teaching Indian and Tibetan and Chinese traditions that would actually be practitioners too, you know, uh, that would have to admit, yes, I am practicing this. Um, so at Rice, I actually felt from all teachers, not just Anne, um, but really a great support for me being a practitioner. Mm-hmm. And um and and Pache again was a great mentor throughout. So when I was ready to drop, uh, and many times uh, that happened, he was like, you I know, know think about you know, how this can help you and when you're going to be teaching. And um, even when you're going to be teaching, not academically, but when you're going to be teaching Dharma, how what you're learning here, how you can bring that um, to um, the people. So he was a, a great advocate um, um, for me to to do this PhD. Mm. So.
1: And,
0: uh, and when does MD Anderson come into the... So MD Anderson comes... Um, actually relatively early on. So in 98, um, right as, um, so my wife was already um, helping in translations for patients at MD Anderson. But then she got pregnant. And when she got pregnant, she had to stop. She couldn't go to MD Anderson. She felt that was, she, she couldn't, handle that situation, I think. Um, But at that same time, I had a a friend who came also to the practices, Alma, who was also a professor there. And I was interested. Well, I was thinking, you know, would meditation be something to do there? And then my dad was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Uh, That was back in Argentina. But, you know, all these things together. And then one of my teachers, Namkanur Brumpache, was diagnosed with lymphoma. So there were a lot of things about that. And I said, well, there's MD Anderson here. I went back to Alma and I said, don't you think there's a possibility of bringing meditation? And they, she said, they just opened something called Place of Wellness. Let me put you in touch with Laura, who was the director, Laura Fletcher. And um, I had an interview and um, and actually, one of the interviewees, Debbie, I remember very clear. she said, what are you getting out of this? I'm like, wow, that's a great question because, yeah, I'm doing it as a volunteer, so I'm not being paid. What are you getting out of this? And I said, yeah, a lot of learning experiences and learning about impermanence, which is a lot of what we do. And actually, I remember going back to His Holiness and saying, I feel like uh." Walk, uh, talking head you know I'm talking about impermanence to people who were just diagnosed with cancer and so forth and he said it's actually a great practice um so for me uh, going to MD Anderson started teaching meditation um, and again the first thing I did is when that opportunity arose I went back to my teachers and said I have this possibility would this be something that you would support me on doing or you prefer me not to do that. And they were very supportive. Um, um, Tenzin Wanja was supportive. Nankai noh Rinpoche was supportive. Lupin Tenzin Namda Rinpoche was supportive. And uh, Tenzin Wanja was the one who always kept on and became an advisor to all the research I've done with Tibetan practices. Um, and so, and even Lupin, every time we meet, he's like, so how are things going with that? Uh, he was like, it's great that you're doing that. I remember I remember once time he said, Are you doing the hundred day retreat with them? I said, No, we different situation. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: not gonna it's not gonna work. So I, I, I'm I'm feeling sensitive to anybody listening who may not understand what MD Anderson is or what you do yeah, at MD Anderson. Sure, sure.
0: So MD Anderson is a cancer center here in Houston. Quite large, actually. We're twenty some thousand employees. Um and um and what I do is, within the Integrative Medicine Center um, that now exists at that time, was just called Place of Wellness, was one part of what today is the Integrative Medicine Center, um, we bring practices that have some evidence as a way to complement the, um, the conventional medicine. So, for example, people who come to MD Anderson for and they get uh, chemotherapy can come and take uh, classes, Uh, on meditation, on yoga, on tai chi and qigong but also to meet with an integrative medicine um, uh, physician and get their advice and then be directed to maybe oncology massage or to acupuncture Mm -hmm. or to health psychology or to nutrition or to meditation Um, and so these are all modalities um, that we do and so we have both kind of the free offerings through classes that are open to anyone touched by cancer, so if not just patients. So for me, um, my dad had cancer, and uh, he's in Argentina. I can still, if I wouldn't work at MD Anderson, I can go to all those classes for free. I mean, I can still probably do. Um, But um, And then there's individual sessions that you can have with all these uh, practitioners, including what I do uh, in a meditation uh, clinic. But you were doing research out of there on your dissertation, right? Right. So even before the dissertation, I started doing research that then became part of the dissertation, uh, but more of an appendix because my research, my dissertation was really more embedded in the in the kind of religious studies discipline. So in a way, actually Edith Wishograd was the one who said, what you're doing is fantastic, but it won't get you a teaching job in religious studies and yeah. she was totally right yeah. but she said you're touching many lives so go ahead i'll support you and so uh others also started supporting it at the beginning it wasn't that much supported and then um yeah and then i got my job was in medical school and in um in UT Medical School and at MD Anderson doing research on these mind-body practices for different cancer populations.
1: What do you teach at the medical school?
0: At the medical school, I teach under the McGovern Center for Humanities and Ethics that used to be called McGovern Center for Health, Humanities and the Human Spirit. So I teach a lot on the issues of human spirit, uh, which I when I started teaching Rabbi Karf was there. So I learned a lot from from Rabbi Karf. Um, so thank you, Sam. Um, and um, and uh, with Tom Cole and others. So I teach the parts that I have to do. Actually, I have a meditation uh, every Monday for medical students, staff and faculty that started thanks to one of uh, early on students who's now Dr. Frando. So um, Marie, if you're out there. And and so we've been almost a decade teaching that, but I also teach integrative medicine. I teach something on end of life that I called uh, death, dying, and the importance of spirituality in medicine, um, and so I teach uh, a few different things for that.
1: Well, that—that's a ten-hour conversation we right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. So, what's your experience in teaching that?
0: Um, it's been a great class to teach, and I actually started co-teaching something similar with Sam, with Rabbi Carf, um, and, and and now I teach it. A different way, but I, I there's parts that are very important. One is that I, I start with the importance of meaning. Um, so I do uh, Victor Frankel's Man's Search for Meaning, and then I go into integrative medicine, and and then I go into the different uh, ways of connecting to spirituality, whether it's religious or non-religious. Would you define integrative medicine? Yeah. So integrative medicine is a discipline that um, uses um, different aspects of medicine, whether it's conventional or complementary, but it is based on evidence, or at least evidence-informed. So we don't just use, for example, we have a patient that is going through chemotherapy, and uh, which is evidence-based, but we also say, well, what about bringing some other things, maybe some to um, complement some of the um, effects that you even you get f- not only from the cancer, but also from the chemotherapy, maybe fatigue, nausea. So we look, um, so you have peripheral neuropathy, which is lack of feeling or tingling in mm-hmm. your uh, extremities, particularly in your fingers and toes. Well, you know, we have fair amount of evidence that acupuncture can be useful for that so why don't you do acupuncture for that or you have um, you know you have radiation to your um, head and neck and maybe your salivary glands are burnt and so you get what they call you know dry mouth or serostomia well acupuncture actually can help with that or maybe massage can help oncology massage can help in easing some of the pains in certain areas of the body um, or meditation can actually help with anxiety or with actually in, improving some cognitive capacity and so forth so we apply it in areas that have that we have some evidence indicating that those modalities can be helpful
1: do you talk about the tibetan book of the dead
0: not in that context no d- partly d- because we don't you know we we haven't done any kind of evidence around that but but they're but if someone that would come to my one-on-one session and is interested in, we could talk about things of that.
1: I'm going to ask you a really, I don't know, this, this. I don't know, I'll just ask it. So what's your, what's your thought here? Do, do we, are we better with religion? Right. What do things tend to go better? Do we need it?
2: Yeah. Hmm.
0: Um, I I think uh, religion in general is a very positive thing, um, but as any great thing, it can be misused as well. So I don't think religion. It's I mean I think religion itself has great tools. Whatever religion. Um, is just knowing what parts and how to use them. So I find that the spirituality component of many religions is very, very helpful. And, and there's, there's tons of research showing actually how uh, it could be a great, um, whether it's social support because mm-hmm. of the different sanghas or com- religious communities, whether it's a sense of inner support, of inner strength, uh, what I call sometimes our spiritual immune system, um, um, or um, just in terms of your own practice as a way of supporting whichever tools your religion gives you. So I do think it's very uh, powerful and very positive. But as we all know, some of the institutional aspects of religion can also be detrimental. Um, I prefer not to go into that now. But no, yeah.
1: I, I think what's... I keep going back to the hundred thousand, you know, having that kind of practice container daily, every day, every day. It's a discipline. And I, and I, you know, I guess we can get that elsewhere. I mean, you can get that by playing tennis and all of a sudden you can get metaphor out of tennis. You start approaching life, you know, don't swing too hard or (laughs) like, don't rush it, you know, like that, But most of those traditions, especially the contemplative aspect of traditions, provides that kind of container for us to go through those necessary, I think necessary,
0: yeah, uh, processes. Very, you know. For example, I always, you know, think uh, in the uh, Islamic tradition, right? They they pray five times a day, and uh, if you're really present during that time, it's such a great opportunity. so a lot of times it's it's how you approach it. Um, and I would say that sometimes we find ourselves in whatever religion uh, kind of repeating a prayer without really being there um, uh, or doing a prostration without really being totally present. Um, and part of what I like to usually teach or point out and remember myself is to be present during that time that when we're doing a prestation, we need to be fully present. When we're doing a prayer, we need to be fully present. When Whatever we're doing, uh, because research has shown that 48% of the time, not in meditation, just in general, we're not where we are. And yeah. so kind of um, being more present. Statistic. Yeah. Wow.
1: Um, okay, so another big, large question. What is enlightenment? What do we mean by that?
0: So, so if we go back to what I was saying, you know, we we have this natural state of our mind that in, in the instructions of the eye, it's like the ah state of mind in a way. If you're able to be there, all the time, that's enlightenment. right? If you're able to not get distracted, even as they say in something, even for an iota, of a moment, you know. So. So basically what we're doing is cultivating that being familiar with that state of mind so we can expand it more and more, whether we do that in our cushion going from one minute to two to five to 10 to 20 to an hour, whatever, or as we bring it into everyday life. So people who are enlightened are able to live their lives not being distracted from that state of mind, even when they're sleeping, even when you know, they engage with other people that don't think like them. so um, And so, you know, there are these enlightened beings, and, uh, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, they call them Buddhas, but they they don't have to be Buddhist. In the Tibetan, we say Sanjie, for Buddha is a Sanskrit word. So Sanjie means Sang is like clearing, Jie is expanding. So the more you can be in that cleared state of mind, expand, 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 24 hours a day, 365 365 days a year then I mean that's uh, that's enlightened but the beauty of it is I think for us is that seems like a you know a goal that it's probably sounds improbable at least in this lifetime but um, but what is possible is to choose enlightenment at every moment and so at every moment we have the opportunity so when we have the mindfulness to notice that we're not to get back so at least we have we notice when we get distracted to get back sometimes to get back to a meditative state sometimes I'm more connected to our natural state of mind and you know the more we are in those moments the more we can expand that sense of kind of inner well-being that then um, support a sense of well-being for others.
1: Yeah, I like that in the book you said um, one of your teachers commented on open-heartedness, mm. being open-hearted.
0: Yeah, Tenziwanda Rinpoche. And actually that was when we were starting our first research project Then Lorenzo Cohen, which is the researcher I've been working with for 20 years, um, he said... Um, I remember we were in Washington in the in uh, the first Tibet, international Tibetan medical conference. Although the Dalai Lama reminded it's well, it's not the first one because the first one was in seventh century. But um, Lorenzo asked Rinpoche if you would measure whatever you want to measure. What would it be? And he said open heartedness. So um, since then, that, for me that was a. Another, again, another very important thing that really that's what we're after. It's not about, you know, the yogama waves or your, you know. I mean, those things are also good to measure brain waves or to measure, you know, mood and things. They're very important. But at the end of the day, if we want to say kind of where do we really want to go, it's about open-heartedness, about really being fully in that natural state of mind that when it's fully manifest it's basically wisdom and compassion yeah so what are we leaving out i guess what we're leaving out is this next step uh, which is that um, besides you know uh, my work with um, patients and caregivers i've been very interested in doing work with faculty and staff um, lately, unfortunately, um, when you look at the literature of burnout in healthcare providers, but also in different corporations and things, I mean, the burnout and stress is really high. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, together with, a um, old friend, uh, from, uh, actually from Rice, when we were together, uh, he was doing his master's and I was doing my PhD. And then he continued his PhD in Union studies, Sean Fitzpatrick, who's now the director of the Jung Center. Um, we started this venture called the Mind, Body, Spirit Institute under the offices of the Jung Center. And um, and basically, we're doing uh, things for helping burnout and relieve stress. I uh, have a a program that i call cpr but here it's compassionate professional renewal but it is about acute yeah. you know rehabilitation you know uh, you know it's not pulmonary it's not cardiopulmonary but it's uh it's uh it's about it's a different way of resuscitation and rehabilitation and it's uh, about kind of getting us back in track getting us back of that compassion that usually brought us to these professions Um, But also in in corporate world and other world, like to bring us back to our intention of why are we doing what we're doing? Because we know all the detrimental effects of burnout. And actually, you know, uh, for some uh, uh, businesses and institutions, what they care about is cost and it has a great impact in cost. Uh, And so, but I'm more interested particularly in the human Uh, cost. And so if we can help uh, our humans to be back humans uh, and to be more uh, in their connection to themselves and then from there to others, this is what we try and do in the Mind-Body-Spirit Institute. And that's why it is using mind-body practices, but not forgetting the spiritual connection. And so that's why I was very adamant about making sure that it is Mind-Body-Spirit Institute. And um, So far, we've had uh, great support from the community um, and we're starting to get out and roll out into doing programs both uh, at 5200 Montrose, which is the Jung Center, um, but also uh, out in the community where it's needed. Um, So, um, yeah, that's my passion. I'm still going to be 25% at MD Anderson, so I'll still see do my classes and uh, teach my classes and uh, see patients and do a little bit of research um, and support the education programs at MDN at integrative medicine. But I'll be uh, mostly shifting my main role to um, direct this um, new, um, for me, very exciting project, which is the MBSI. It's a good project. I've been watching your
1: videos and keeping up with all the stuff going on over there you you said something though that
0: how do you define spirit so um you know it's it's, it's been interesting and here i'll i'll share a little bit of what i learned from uh, from rabbi karf which he really had this really important concept of spiritual religious and non-religious and so of course the religious spiritual traditions uh, or the spirituality within a religious tradition is more clear. I think people understand that, and it's usually that connection to the transcendent, or whether you call it God or not. In the non-religious, uh, some people, you mentioned tennis. I, I remember having a friend who would talk about sailing. For her, sailing was when she was by herself in the middle of the ocean. She would feel, she would say, describe things very similar to what I would describe in meditation. Um, I know people in music uh, would say the same, and you probably know that. So it could be art, artists, you know, it could be different things. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that every time you do music or you paint or you, that is spiritual, not necessarily. It's how in that approach you can be, you connect. There's a sense of, Connectedness that comes through these practices, whether, and sometimes it's not a particular practice, nature, wow, I can just be there. Can I utilize that as a way of supporting my spiritual connection? In fact, we do a class now at MD Anderson called Meditation and Daily Life, and a practice that I do also at the Yoon Center called Meditation and Tea. So we incorporate things such as meditation and tea, meditation and art, meditation and writing, meditation and nature connecting to that as a way of finding support. So for me, it's all about how do we find ways of supporting our connection. So that is spirituality. And it brings, kind of reconnects us to the meaning of life, of kind of um, why we're here. And I want to A patient just shared a story. I I just shared it. Um, Someone asked me about it and remembering Harvey. Kathy Marys was doing a blog from uh, Rice. And um, and so this patient uh, from California um, got stuck here during Harvey. And uh, as she said, she was kind of freaking out. And uh, she found herself in her hotel inside a closet she was so nervous and she found herself holding a cup of tea and as she was holding her cup of tea she saw a cup of tea and remembered the meditation and tea class and she said her whole approach suddenly shifted she was able to calm and focus and reconnect she said my whole perspective of Harvey changed she called enthusiastically to MD Anderson to integrative medicine what you do at integrative medicine the meditation it's been great and so in a way for me those are the moments of saying this is what I do what I do and um, and I'm hoping that um, in the same way I've I've found over the years um, faculty and staff saying you know that They were able to do surgery better or they were able to focus more and less migraines or reduce their tachycardia because it was all due to stress um, because their grant wasn't being published or whatever you know um, that that we're able to to bring these practices to those but also as sean reminds me not just within the healthcare professions but all other professions um, that also need it and so um, we are opening our borders to anyone that can benefit from this.
1: Keep it up, man. That's wonderful. Uh, how can people get a hold of you?
0: Oh, um, um, we have a website for the MBSI. It's mbsihouston.org. Um, and then I have my own uh, website. It's Chaul, so A-L-E-C-H-A-O-U-L.com. Um, so you're welcome to connect with me. I teach uh, not just at MD Anderson. I teach also, of course, at the Jung Center, which is junghouston.org. I teach at Rice Continuing Studies. So these are classes that are open to everyone. Um, they do have a, a fee, but not very high, I hope. And um, and so there's ways of 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 doing uh, of connecting. And so e- email my email. I'll give it out. Is alechaul.com. Uh, alechaul at gmail.com so again A-L-E-C-H-A-O-U-L at gmail.com so feel free to connect I'm I'm looking forward to connect to uh, new people who are interested in this area and hopefully together we all flourish
1: Yeah. thanks man
0: thank you and thank you for this opportunity it was great talking with you
1: what a gift